For I wandered so aimless, my fear was sin. things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out, of the, uh, out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known um, her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into to, uh, King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman sent to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus in his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. 
Then the king gave a great feast for all the officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Verse 19. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. This came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. This is God's word. Let's pray over it. Uh, Father, we uh, are desperate for you to come and speak now in this time and do what uh, this weak and poor preacher is incapable of doing, and that is to feed the sheep, to transform the flock of God into sin-killing, Christ-loving children of heaven. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would do that by the power of your word as we stand on it. We believe in it. We hold fast to it. We love it. Uh, Would you enlarge our hearts as the psalmist prayed as we read it? Um, Father, you are in, in control of Main Street Baptist Church. And so when you speak, we need to listen. And I pray that that would be enough. Let's wipe away the distractions. Let's, let's really hone in, Lord, on your word now. You reign in this moment. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, <clears throat> so, Esther chapter 2. Um, this is a, uh, maybe an iconic story. I don't know if you've heard of it before. Uh, many of you probably have to some degree or another if you've uh, been familiar with the Bible. Um, but... I've titled this sermon here, The Bachelor, Persian Edition, and that is primarily for a a funny laugh, a good little chuckle, Uh, but it's also to draw you in to what's taking place here um, in Esther chapter 2. It's an iconic story because it it just draws us in. I mean, if you're going to tell a story, uh, this is is one that people are going to listen to, you know, we, we see these funny TV shows today called The Bachelor, The Bachelorette, and I have never watched them. And so to do a little bit of research, I YouTubed The Bachelor this week, um, and quite frankly, it was hilarious. Um, I was laughing all by myself in the office uh, right, right back here uh, because you got this main guy who is just, he is the king, man. He is number one. He's got so much confidence. His head is puffed up as far as puffed up can be. And there are these women who apparently are just in love with him for some reason. And they're certainly not actors, by the way. And um, they, <laughs> they're all competing to win his heart. And for some reason, again, if you watch that show, that's, that's your deal. I... I I don't know how people watch it, but it, it's just, unless you're just want to make, wanting to make fun of it, it seemed really hilarious uh, to me. But it draws us in. It gets a lot of views. 
The people who do watch it are devoted to it, and they won't miss an episode, and they even do the whole spoiler thing. Don't tell me what happened. Don't tell me who went home, right? And so we see this on a far larger scale taking place where there's this one man whom we met last week named King Ahasuerus, king over all of Persia, this world empire, 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia, so rich, so wealthy, couches of gold, mosaic floors of mother of pearl. This guy was number one. What woman wouldn't want to be his? And we read this story, and, it, and, and there's some bittersweet parts to it, and we'll kind of get to that part when they start selecting the women and how that process went. Um, but, but I want to draw you in this morning that part of this, what makes this such a good story, is, is just how kind of bizarre and strange it is that this king is choosing his queen, and there are hundreds of women here lining up to the door to get their chance at being the queen. And you'll remember this takes place uh, somewhere in the mid-400s B.C., um, and you remember what happens if you resist King Ahasuerus, right? What happens if you say no to one of his rules? Well, I don't care if you're his wife. You get banished. He's going to keep his power. He's going to keep his control. He's going to keep his authority no matter what. And you'll remember in the, the history of Israel, Israel is technically free by this point. Persia came in and, and kind of took over Babylon and the Assyrians, and Cyrus gave the Jews more freedom. You can go back to Jerusalem if you want. That was over 100 years ago, and now there are still Jews living in places like Susa. Um, and you'll remember last week that we saw that Part of what was taking place was the Hazards was throwing this ridiculous party, the party of the century, right? 180-day party with a seven-day after party. But it had a rough ending when his wife, Vashti, refused to come out and be a model for the audience. They were merry with wine, and they made some foolish decisions, he and his prince, I think. And to end this party in a bitter way... Celebrating his three-year anniversary, they banished his wife, commanding all Persian women to obey their husbands and demand a replacement queen who is better than Vashti. And it seems like a very ridiculous story about what the world looks like without God in it, doesn't it? Nevertheless, God is behind the scenes working through all of these ridiculous scenes to do something for his glory and for the good of his people. And the passage we're covering today, just chapter 2, is about a three-year span. It's a big chunk. You might think we read a lot of verses. This is three years. A lot was going on during this uh, portion of Scripture. The decision to banish Vashti was put in place immediately, but her replacement would take three years to find the perfect queen. So let's start there as the search begins. In, uh, in verse 1 through 4, we see um, Ahasuerus basically hung over and alone. He uh, says, after these things, when his anger had abated, he remembered Vashti. He remembered what he had done. And it's almost kind of this sad scene where he's like, maybe that wasn't so good. I'm kind of alone now. Maybe he misses Vashti. He remembers what he'd done and what had been de decreed against her. And he's got nobody there to comfort him because his own wife is now banished. So she's gone. There's no going back. 
And last week, we met these seven princes, these wise men. How did they, how did they console the king during this time of refusal? They told him what he wanted to hear, right? We've got to make a new law, king, that says, you know, you're untouchable, essentially, and we've got to find another queen. And so he finds more people. This time, um, his, uh, his servants, his uh, eunuchs, his attenders to, to come to him, and, and they say, well, well, king, here's what we're going to do. I, I've got the perfect solution to make you feel better. Let's start the search today. Brush it off. You, you always make the right decisions. You won't miss her. We're going we're gonna to go out today, and we're going to start the search for a new queen. We're going to bring you all the most beautiful young women in all the land, and whichever one you like best, she's going to be your queen. It's your choice. And thus, the king was pleased, and the search commenced. And here's how they go about it. So they place an officer in every single province. How many provinces were there? 127. These officers would be in charge of selecting the woman. They're going to gather the most beautiful virgins in all of their province, and they're going to bring them to the citadel in Susa where the king was. When they get to Susa, there's this guy named Haggai who's going to be in charge of their care and giving them their cosmetics. We'll talk about that, which means this was an elaborate undertaking to gather all these women to the citadel. But would you expect anything less of King Ahasuerus? Is he elaborate? He's pretty elaborate, I think. Remember, golden couches, mosaic floors. If each province gathered 100 women, that would be 12,700 ladies gathered at the citadel. We don't know how many were gathered. Might have been less than that. Could have been more than that. There were a lot of women gathered at the citadel. So you can kind of see why this would take time. This is a process to find the perfect queen. Verse 12 kind of provides us a few more details about this process and how they underwent this search. Look at verse 12. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young woman went in to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in. In the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and was summoned by name. So each woman... However many there were, hundreds, had to go through this process called beautification. Beautification. Not only were they going to pick the prettiest for this contest, but they were going to make sure that the king saw every lady at her prettiest, if that makes sense. So each one got 12 months of essentially fumigation with fancy oils and perfumes to make sure that they looked pretty and smelled good. They had an entire year to get perfectly dolled up for the king. And it doesn't mention it here, but we'll see in a little bit. They were also fed meals. And this wasn't just so that they wouldn't starve. This was to fatten them up. This was uh, not the culture that we see today where the skinnier the better. Um, they, they wanted their women beautified, nice and full. So they were on a weight gaining program as well. And this, like I said, was kind of a, a weird, bittersweet thing for the Persian people. On the one hand, if you get to be the queen, it's kind of like winning the lottery, right? I mean, you, you can go from poverty to riches in a night, in a day. 
You get to be the queen. You get the best life that would be available to you. Anything you could ever want, total comfort, crazy wealth, everything taken care of, of you for the rest of your days. A lot of these poor families would have wanted to see the, the young lady and their family get a chance at being the queen. But on the other hand, you didn't really get a choice. If the official finds you and he thinks you've got potential, there's no discussion to be had. The king must have his way. You're going to Susa. You're going to start the beautification process whether you like it or not. So there might have been this mixed scene of some women being ripped away from their families and others desperate to get a chance to go and live at the citadel. And by the way, if you didn't get to be queen, you didn't go back home. You remained at the citadel for the rest of your days owned by the king. Which again might have been a bittersweet thing. It had been hard to leave life and their families for many people, but the chance at, at, you know, being taken care of and wealth and no longer living in, in poverty, even just to live at the citadel. So let me point out one more thing about Ahasuerus here and his folly. Who was he looking for? A queen better than Vashti. Right? That's what he said. We're going to find a better queen. Vashti said no to the king. So a better queen would be the one who's always compliant, never steps up to him, never refuses. And if you look at this process, there is absolutely no survey being done for character traits like obedience and loyalty. Even the American beauty pageants on TV will have funny questions or hard questions for them to answer. But this is 110% about external, outward adornment 100% about superficial looks and beautification Ahasuerus isn't too smart is he he's really asking for the entire process to be repeated so uh, fortunately even though Ahasuerus has no idea what he's doing who does know what's going on the Lord is at work and is doing something through this so let's meet Mordecai and Esther now number two Mordecai and Esther let's look at verse five now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shemai, son of Kish, a Benjaminite who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Verse 7, he was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure, was lovely to look at, and when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Um, so, so we'll stop there. There's this Jew, now new characters, living in Susa, the citadel, most likely working the way it reads at the citadel. Uh, we find out later, maybe a guard. Uh, his name is Mordecai. He's actually a descendant of King Saul. His father, Kish, was carried away from Jerusalem and into Babylonian captivity when the Assyrians took over Israel. Mordecai hasn't known any other life than the Persian life. He has never looked on the great city of Jerusalem. He's probably about middle-aged, maybe 60. And because he's lived in Persian territory for so long, we think Mordecai is a very Jewish name, don't we? It's actually a Persian name after the, the pagan god Marduk. So evidently, assimilation had taken place. He, he's, he's living as a Persian, even though he is Jewish. And he knows he's in exile. He's working in the citadel. He's bringing up a daughter, and what's her name? Her name is Hadassah. 
which in Jewish actually means myrtle, like the flower, something pretty. We know her better as Esther or Ishtar, which is the Persian name, again, just like Mordecai had a Persian name named Star was her name, Star. So something beautiful, something pretty. He adopted her after both her parents died. Esther's dad was Mordecai's uncle, so they're technically cousins, but because of the age difference, he takes her in. They have this father-daughter relationship. And now we have a Jew named Mordecai, whose grandfather was exiled into this land because of sin, and it's the only land he's ever known, working a job at the Citadel to take care of his adopted orphaned daughter, who also has never laid eyes on the great city of Jerusalem and has gone through the tragedy of losing both parents as a young girl. And this is where God's plan truly begins to unfold. The writer foreshadows something in verse 7 when he says, The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. What was the requirement for Ahasuerus' queen? She had to be beautiful. She had to be the prettiest in all the land. Well, Esther's overqualified, isn't she? She's not just beautiful. She's got a beautiful figure, and she's lovely to look at. She's overqualified. As the story goes, hundreds of women. Esther was one of those who was taken, put in custody with Haggai. And and we'll read a little bit more, and you'll see in verse 9, after she's taken... Verse 9 says that uh, the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. So immediately, as soon as she's taken into custody at the Citadel by this guy named Haggai, who is in charge of the women, he, she immediately wins favor in his eyes. And, and, and it seems like she's winning everybody's favor. Haggai quickly provided Esther with cosmetics, with her portion of food. He advanced her. He gave women under her to serve her. And very quickly, she's gone from this unknown Jewish girl living in Susa to the top tier of the women at the harem, getting all her cosmetic treatments first, Haggai slipping her Twinkies so that she gains more weight than the others. And somehow or another, she knew how to work the system and please the right people and say the right things to politic her way to the top. And this is contrasted by what's said in verse 10, because nobody knew she was Jewish. She did not tell anybody, as Mordecai commanded her, of her heritage and her kindred, her people. And that's important. We'll come back to that. Meanwhile, what's Mordecai doing as this is going on? Mordecai is outside, daily, walking in front of the court, learning what's happening to Esther and what uh, was going on. And I think we quickly elevate Esther and Mordecai to, like, the hero status a little too quick. Because we see Esther politicking her way to the top. We see Mordecai outside pacing nervously, having very little faith. Abraham had his sins. So did Isaac, Jacob, and all the rest. Esther and Mordecai are not exemplifying any faith that should be admirable to us. Mordecai is too afraid to testify to the truth of his God, Yahweh. He's nervously pacing the court every day out of fear, 
leaving his God completely out of this matter. But let me remind you that God is doing something. Whether they knew it or not, whether they were willing to acknowledge him or not, he desires to use orphans and exiles. And he can even use those who suppress their faith at times for fear of persecution. And that's good news for us. And I hope it's good news for you. So we're moving quickly. We're going to get through the story. There's, there's application at the end, I promise. A better queen is chosen. Let's see who the king is going to pick. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And they gave a feast in her honor. So the turn came for Esther to go and see the king. A lot of time has passed. She's gone through at least a year of beautification. She's had to wait Her turn, when the time came, she asked for nothing more than what Haggai advised, it says. Some some preachers seem to imply that means Esther didn't really need makeup. I think it just means she was super confident, uh, not in God, but in her outward adornment and her ability to please people and work her way to the top. Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her, but the ultimate question would be if she could win the favor of the king. She's been able to win everybody else over. And in the tenth month... Of his seventh year, she was taken to see the king. And what happens? The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she won grace and favor in his sight, so much so that he immediately set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. It reads like he didn't even have to think about it. She was the one. A better queen was chosen. Someone who could look the part, who knows how to be compliant and please people. This great Persian king, without knowing, has just chosen an orphaned Jewish girl to be his wife. And Esther, though we are inclined to celebrate, has just married a pagan who worships false gods, which has been outside of God's design for Israel since the beginning. Our hearts want to celebrate. The king is happy, and that happiness trickles down through all of Persia, and a great feast is thrown, and the honor of Esther, and, and even um, the, the remission of taxes, man. That should be a reason to rejoice. Wouldn't we rejoice? But as the world rejoices, those who know and love the Lord and his law, we weep. We weep. Part of us should feel a weight of sin and sadness that God's law, as well as his name and reputation, has been ignored and spurned in this marriage. But Esther isn't the only one who knows how to work the system. What's Mordecai doing? Mordecai works at the citadel. You see in verse 19, he's there every day looking for Esther's care, but also maybe looking for opportunities. And, And one day, while sitting at the king's gate, which is why we say maybe he was a guard or something... Bigthan and Teresh were also guards, and they get angry about something that the king was doing, perhaps, and they laid a secret plot 
to destroy him, to lay hands on the king. Nowadays, when people get angry at work, they just unionize and start fires and stuff, right? They were going to go straight to the top. They're going to get the king. And when Mordecai came to the knowledge of this, which it was probably like, hey, Mordecai, you in? We're taking down the king. You in or you out, right? Well, when Mordecai came to the knowledge of this, he went and told Esther. Esther went and told the king and um, did not mean to put a damper on the party, but hey, uh, people are trying to kill you, uh, king. So, so lesson learned here, you, you don't mess with the king because if he's going to banish his wife just for saying no, what do you think he's going to do to people who threaten to kill him? They were immediately executed after the affair was found to be true. And she told the king in the name of Mordecai that this had taken place. Mordecai didn't get any praise in this moment, but Hazarus would learn who Mordecai was. So starting here, Esther would not be the only one winning favor with the Persian Empire. So, there we are, chapter 2. This is the first time I've ever studied Esther in order to preach it. I've always really liked Esther. I remember reading it in college and being very struck by it. And that, that one you know, verse that we'll get to eventually, which is maybe the thesis people love, um, for such a time as this, you know. And, and I, I just found so much hope in this book. It's a really wonderful story. And my heart wants to preach happy things that you're probably used to hearing. But we can't ignore what's going on in Esther chapter 2 that this young woman is ignoring her God along with her adopted father Mordecai and politicking her way to worldly success. What, what happens when we read the story of Joseph? We're pumped, right? There's this kid who was sold into slavery by his own brothers, proudly trusting in God, wins favor with everybody over Egypt and makes his way to the top in Egypt because that's what God had decreed. He did murder someone, but his overall posture was following Yahweh no matter the consequences. How about when we read the story of Daniel? We're pumped when we read the story of Daniel. Why? Because we see these young men taken into Babylon, given pagan names, forced to eat meat, which was against God's law. What did Daniel do? He said, I'll eat vegetables and I'll, just, I'll be just as strong. I won't disobey my God. I'm following Yahweh, even if it gets me put into a fiery furnace. But how come when we read Esther, we celebrate her and Mordecai's faithlessness? We should not be too quick to celebrate. God was certainly doing something, but they were self-confident Jews hiding their true allegiance. They trusted in their own flesh and lied about their covenant God who was restoring their own freedom and brought Persia in to do just that. The first point of application here is that we should not hide our faith for the sake of worldly success. Don't hide your faith for the sake of worldly success. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record Jesus' words. You don't put lamps under baskets and beds. Right? Nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light says the Lord Jesus. For those of us who are bought by Christ and are abiding in Him, there is never a suitable circumstance for us to publicly disassociate ourselves from Jesus Christ. 
It doesn't matter if you're going to have a better in with your boss at work, if you're single and you're interested in dating an unbeliever and suppressing the Jesus talk will help you with that, if you're trying to be more tolerant of the sin of one of your family members or someone close to you, so you just dismiss it because you, you love them, you make exceptions just for them, even though the word of Christ is clear. If you're a completely different person on social media than you are in real life, denying Jesus with every post and everything you look at online, if you are about to be thrown into a fiery furnace, what does that mean for us? We testify to the gospel of Jesus Christ no matter the cost. Have we read the Bible? Have we read the New Testament? This life is a vapor. His kingdom is forever. Is there really a choice to be had here? Those of us who are most likely to do this are the ones resting on our laurels. In other words, we're not very dependent on Jesus already. We defer to our own knowledge and wisdom, our skills, our abilities, our networking relationships, our flesh in order to make it day by day. And none of that really gives glory to Jesus. If that's you, you might have already disassociated yourself from Jesus without even knowing it. If you live this life embarrassed and ashamed of the gospel, Paul says to Timothy that you're not worthy to share in the blessings of the gospel. This is not a gray area. But let me point out another thing. Why are Esther and Mordecai even in this situation to begin with? Why are they living in Susa? Because sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. How did they get there? Let's go back to the days of Jair and Kish, the fathers of Mordecai. What did they do? They did a whole lot of bad things. Read Isaiah sometime. They made idols for themselves. They threw justice out the window. They had forgotten the law of the Lord. In short, they rebelled against the God of their covenant, the one who created them, and had wonderful promises for them. They sinned against him. And now, a couple centuries later, the lingering effects of those sins are still at work. God sent the Assyrians to go in and judge the people, pillage the land, and take them for themselves. Who taught Mordecai and Esther how to assimilate with this culture regardless of their allegiance to the Lord? Who taught them how to do that? Their fathers. Why are they living in Susa instead of the great city Jerusalem? Why is God not mentioned once in this entire book? Because sin has consequences. I want to really warn you this morning of sin's lingering consequences. One of Satan's biggest lies is that sin and its consequences is not that big a deal. Will you surely die, Eve? Is that what the Lord really said? Will you surely die? Isn't that a little extreme? Sin has consequences, and those consequences aren't usually over in a day or two. Sometimes they affect our entire families. Sometimes they change the entire trajectory of our lives, the entire trajectory of our offspring or even their offspring. Sometimes our sin causes other people to sin. Sometimes our sins have terrible effects on the church, Jesus' bride, causing division and hatred. Sometimes the consequences of sin are so bad that your entire life changes completely and there are no going back to the way things once were. 
And of course, we know biblically the worst consequence of all from sin is death. You can't read the first six chapters of Romans and not see that. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and our sin deserves death and hell. But aside from our own spiritual consequences, maybe you need to hear this morning that it also affects other people. If the argument of sin equals death isn't helping you defeat sin in your life right now, try a few of these. This sin can and will destroy my life. This sin can and will create lingering lingering effects on my marriage and my children. This sin will tarnish my church and cause it to suffer. This sin will hurt the people that I love the most. I can tell you confidently this morning from personal experience and from Esther chapter 2 that sin has terrible consequences. Take up the word and fight because your soul is not the only thing at stake when we sin. Souls of others are in jeopardy when we are sinning. Souls are the ones we love the most. But I've also got some good news on a happier note here. And that's that the worst of sinners are not too far gone. The worst of sinners are not too far gone. Sin does not automatically bring abandonment if you are in Christ. Maybe you've made mistakes and you're having to experience the consequences of that mistake every single day. Maybe you are constantly faced with the terrible decision you made years ago because of the circumstances that you're in now. I can tell you that Esther, with a crown on her head, is living proof that just because Satan has won with a previous sin does not mean that God has forfeited your soul if you are in Jesus Christ. It's not over. Here is hope for those of us who have married non-Christians knowing it was wrong. Here is hope for us who have chosen a career based on all the wrong motivations or have wasted a lifetime in pursuit of the wrong goals. Here is hope for those of us who have had abortions, who have been unbiblically divorced, who have had children out of marriage, who have faced various addictions to drugs and alcohol, who have spent a chunk of their life in a prison cell and will never get that time back. Here is hope for anyone who has ever made a bad decision that changed the entire course of their life. The story isn't over. God has supplied Jesus Christ our righteousness because he knew that you could not keep his law. He knew when he saw Esther and Mordecai hiding their allegiance and politicking their way to the top. He, he could have chosen another. He could have said, well, they're not going to do it my way. I'll find another Jewish family to use. He could have easily decided to do that. But he is our covenant-keeping father. He is terribly grieved by sin, but he does not break his covenant. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. If you're faced with the consequences of something that happened five years ago, ten years ago, twenty years ago, sanctification is still for you by the power of the gospel. Because Christ never stops refining us. 
and he never gives up on us when we sin. And my favorite thing to do as we read Esther is this last piece, which is to compare the Persian Empire with God's kingdom. Because Christ is refining us day by day. What do we see here in Esther 2 with this great bachelor beauty competition, hundreds of women being taken by force at the king's command, and an unbelievable beautifying process that took years for these women to go through? How does God choose us, family? How does God choose us? Does he do it based on outward external appearances? Does he do it based on earthly beauty and worldly success? He doesn't. He chooses us based on the beauty and righteousness of his own son, credited to our account. I heard some amens on that one, and that makes me happy, because maybe you're getting it here. King Ahasuerus looks for the most beautiful in all the land and throws the rest into his collection of secondhand Barbie dolls. Jesus dies for us and makes us his beautiful chosen ones standing ready to intercede for us every day in every imperfection that we have. What does the Father look at to choose us? The Lord told Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Don't spend too much time working on your body, which is of some value. But let the Lord sanctify you because godliness is a value in every way. The beautification process that God uses is far superior than Ahasuerus's. Ahasuerus's model takes 12 months. With God, it is the rest of our lives that he spends sanctifying us, washing us with his word, cleaning off our feet when we sin, and transforming our desires to his desires. And through this process, we see something marvelous taking place in Revelation 21. John looks and beholds a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down to meet Jesus. What does she look like? She looks like a bride adorned, beautified for her husband. And one day we will be fully beautified and Jesus doesn't need a Hazarus' help. Do you know the bridegroom? Are you being beautified daily by the power and goodness of his word and his presence? Are you putting off old sins and putting on the new man? Are you looking forward to a day when all will be made new and you will be finally with the one who came and substituted his beauty for your shame? What was Ishtar's name? Star, star. In the coming generations, a star would be born over Bethlehem. And he would be the fairest of them all. And no beauty would match the beauty of this king. And yet he would be rejected. He would be shamed publicly on a cross. Enduring the weight of your guilt and of my guilt, dying the death we deserved so that he could make beautiful the shameful ones like you and me. This is God's kingdom. Won't you come and be a part of it and let him beautify you daily until he comes back. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to another message from the pulpit ministry of Main Street Baptist Church in Spindale, North Carolina. 
I hope that your soul has been edified as a result of hearing the Word of God preached and that God will continue to be glorified in your life as you worship Jesus. If you have any questions about the message you heard today, feel free to uh, check us out online and send an email. You can find us at www.mainstreetspindale.com or you can call us directly at 828-286-2291. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless.